This is Stage Right, and I am your host, John Thorne. They say if you die with a handful of friends, you die a rich man. Well, I have several buses full, and I'm very excited to share them all with you. Welcome to Stage Right. I am your host, John Thorne. Thanks for listening today to episode 19. Today, my guest is Brian Wooten. Brian is a songwriter, producer, and a monster, monster guitar player for country music superstar Trace Atkins. Brian will be here in just a minute. But before I bring Brian onto the show, I want to start the show off a little different today. I want to give you a list of five songs that hugely influenced my life both as a Christian and a musician. Now we're going way back in the Wayback Machine, early CCM, but if you get the time, I would love it if you went and looked all these songs up on YouTube and gave them a listen because they are all there for sure. So it's not a top five list, but it's just five that I want to give you today because if I gave you the list of the most impactful songs of my life, it's probably a thousand songs because I've listened to music extensively my entire life, and I know you don't have time to go back and listen to all the songs that I've listened to. But here's five. Here's five really important songs in my life, both as a Christian and a musician. Number five, I'll Never Pass This Way Again by Sammy Hall, and the album that that song is on, Hooked on a Good Thing. So if you punch in Hooked on a Good Thing, Sammy Hall, I'll Never Pass This Way Again, you'll find the song. Number four is Child of the Father by Mylon Lefebvre and Broken Heart from their first album, Brand New Start. It's just a great song. Listen to that song probably a couple thousand times in my life. Wonderful song. All right, number three, Dying from Joe English from his first album, Lights in the World. And I couldn't decide between number one and number two, so I'm going to give them both to you. And it's from the same album, Russ Taft's first album, Walls of Glass. One of the songs is Walls of Glass, number two. And the number one song I want you to listen to this next week is Tell Them by Russ Taft. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Hey Rockstar. Hey Rockstar provides digital marketing software and services to generate more leads, more exposure, and more revenue for your business or organization. Let Hey Rockstar amplify your awesomeness. Ladies and gentlemen, the Stevie Ray Vaughan of Nashville. Oh, God. <laughs> Mr. Brian Wooten. <laughs> oh, Lord, help me. <laughs> oh, man. How are you doing today, Brian? Excelente. Excelente. I like that. All right, so we have a lot of ground to cover today, and I believe the world needs more of Brian Wooten, so we're going to make this all about you today. Yeah, I don't think so, but go ahead. (laughs) All right, let's start at the very, very beginning. Where did you grow up? I'm a Navy brat, military, so I was born in Illinois. We went from Illinois to California, which I don't remember any of that. And then up to Washington State, I remember a little bit of that because kindergarten. Right. And then from there down to uh, southern Louisiana, New Iberia, and then from there to Texas, Beeville, Texas, 78102. Wow. 
Oh my gosh, Beeville, yeah. Texas. Sounds like a metropolis. <laughs> 1409 East Rosewood, Beeville, Texas, 78102. I still remember it. That is awesome, dude. So they haven't named a street after you yet? Not yet, not yet. I've been lobbying them, but they haven't come through yet. <laughs> okay, so that reminds me, I know you were there for this, so I just, I have to bring this up just for a good laugh. I remember when you guys went to Fort Smith and they had Anthony Salee Day. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That was funny. That's awesome. It was awesome. I remember him coming home and telling me about it, and I was like, oh, yeah. my gosh, that's so great. Love it. So we got to have Brian Wooten Day in Beeville. Yeah, in Beeville. Yeah, and I, and I got out of high school there and went to Austin, music mecca, and uh, that's kind of where I grew up musically until I moved to Nashville. Wow. So was there any music in your home growing up? Uh, very little. God, there was actually two bands, though, in Beeville. It was, uh, we were called Afternoon Tea, and the other band was Concrete Tricycle. Wow. And then eventually, you know, there came to be a couple of others, you know, but uh, I was just concerned with Afternoon Tea. That's named after a, a song by the Kinks. Our drummer was a big Kinks fan. Okay. And so we, we adopted that name and uh, did copy stuff, obviously. <laughs> right. No, that's awesome. Okay, so... So do you remember the first song you ever heard on the radio or the first song you remember hearing around the house that um, stuck with you, made you conscious of music? I have no idea. No idea. <laughs> no idea. I mean, the, what got me interested in playing the guitar, though, was the Beatles. Okay. They had uh, Beatle cartoons on. I'm really showing my age here, but they had Beatle cartoons on TV, and my brother had a buddy who actually had an electric guitar, he brought it over to the house, no amp, just an SG, I think. And he would play along with the songs on the cartoons. And I was fascinated by that and thought, that's what I want to do. And, you know, my brother actually sang and played as well. And we talked to our parents into getting us a, a guitar for Christmas, silver tone guitar in the case with the amp in the case. Right. And uh, I was off to the races. That's all I wanted to do. Coaches at, at uh, high school would like, hey, man, come be on the basketball team, football team. I'm like, nah, I got to go home and practice. <laughs> right. I don't want to hurt my fingers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's what got me going. So I, I loved all the Beatles stuff. Dude, that is great. Now, was it the music scene in Austin that took you to Austin? Or did you just move there and then discover the music scene? It was definitely the music thing. We had a, a place in Bevo called the Youth Center. And they would bring bands in from out of town. And there was a band down from Austin. And uh, they actually let me sit in with them. Oh, wow. And we had a great time. And they gave me, one guy gave me the number. His number said, if you ever make it up to Austin, give me a call. And by golly, as soon as I got to Austin, I gave him a call and got a gig. <laughs> oh, awesome. man. Yeah, amazing. Right on. Okay, so at what point in this journey did you become a Christian? I was in Austin. Uh, playing in a, a rock band, everything's good. It's kind of interesting. A lot of people talk about how you know they got hooked on drugs or drinking or just had an awful life and they were down and out and they found Jesus. Well, I was doing great. I didn't drink, smoke, never did drugs, even though I was in a rock band. I was happy, mm -hmm. but uh, I knew there was something missing. And everyone, like, I'd go to the, the doctor's office, they'd have a guidepost magazine right. there, and I'd read through it and go, Man, this is so interesting. And I'd be flipping through the channels late at night after doing a gig and 700 Club would be on. So I'd stop and watch it for a while and go, man, this is 
interesting. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And I remember one night after a gig, just you know, I was watching 700 Club and they'd do the altar call. And I said, well, you know what? Why not? And that's how I became a Christian. And uh, that changed everything. Wow. <laughs> so did you know anyone else in Austin that was a Christian? It's funny because I really didn't know very many people at all in that industry. Um, started going to church, of course. How did you know which church to go to? And I don't remember. I just, I don't, I really don't remember. But how I, I don't know if I went church shopping. Right. I probably did, but I just ended up in one place and and liked it, and heard about a guy named Philip Sandifer, who was like the only Christian artist I was aware of. Right. In Austin at the time, and so I got in touch with him and got a, a gig with him. Wow. And we toured around the country, you know, Youth for Christ and stuff like that. And uh, we were doing shows around the country and opening for the Imperials. <laughs> that's the connection. Yeah, that's the connection. And the Imperials decided they wanted a new guitar player. And the, their bass player, Jimmy Lee Slows, suggested they get me. Wow. So, you know, and Jeff Nolte was from Corpus Christi. He was going to be their, their sound guy. Yeah. And he had an 18-wheeler for his sound company. And his buddy uh, had the, uh, the lighting company. And so they got all their gear, and they were moving to Nashville. They stopped from Corpus on their way, stopped in Austin, picked me up and my family, and, you know, all our stuff put on the back of their truck. That was convenient. And we went to to Nashville with that gig, and the day we arrived, it was the worst snowstorm that Nashville had ever seen. Oh, my goodness. And we had one day to find an apartment, and it was in Bellevue, of course, because that's where everybody moves when mm-hmm. they move to Nashville in Christian music. Right. And we got an apartment there, and the very next day we were on the road. Right. Amazing. That is, dude, that's crazy. Now, you knew Nolte from before. Yeah, I knew him from the Beeville days because he's from Corpus Christi, and Corpus Christi is only about 60 miles from Beeville. And of course, he's a musician, so we eventually found each other. Right. Started hanging out and started actually playing together for a little bit. He was a guitar player back then. So when you joined the Imperials, what album were they touring? This year's model. Oh, my gosh. No way. What a fantastic album. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So then how long were you in the Imperials before Jimmy Lee left? You got to play with Jimmy Lee for quite a while? Yeah. Jimmy and Ron Henby were, were trading off bass duties, and they both sang, of course. Right. And then I, uh, eventually Jimmy left, and then uh, Jeff Nolte, I think, was the ended up playing bass at some point all right you want to hear a funny story about that yes (laughs) do you remember steve brewster's last show at that festival in tiffin ohio no (laughs) okay so i had left truth and went back to michigan for a couple months while i was waiting to move to nashville and jackie street called me and said hey i'm playing for margaret becker next week down in tiffin ohio you should come to the show (laughs) so i drive down thinking it's a margaret becker concert and i got there around noon and it was a festival well guess who was playing with margaret that day it was the imperials that was the day i met you oh cool (laughs) so you and i have another bizarre random connection uh i was a youth pastor for a short time and the church i worked for owned a house I lived in the apartment in the back of the house, and the woman that rented the house was a good friend of your wife named Dawn. 
Yep, Don. So because I was friends with Don yep. and had heard about, you know, Brian Wooten for years, <laughs> I felt when I met you that day, I felt like, man, I already know this guy. This is pretty cool. So Jackie introduced me to you. He introduced me to Brewster. He introduced me to Nolte, who was actually playing a Steinberger bass. Yeah, how about that? And uh, so anyways, Brewster left the road that day and went to become a studio guy. Yeah, I remember Steve talking about, you know, trying to become a session player and getting off the road and saying, I'll, I'll just have to eat peanut butter for a, a year or two until something breaks. And sure enough, man, he did it. He's doing all the records these days and for years now. Dude, looking back at that rhythm section, you, Jimmy Lee Slowis, Steve Brewster, Bo Cooper. And Bo Cooper on keyboards. Isn't Bo still with David Foster? I think he does shows with David Foster, amongst others. Yeah. I mean, what yeah. a rhythm section. Oh, my gosh. I'm telling you, it was awesome. I can't believe. That's just so cool, dude, that you were part of that. That is yeah, that is. is just some of the best music ever made. And to be on that that particular album was so good. Oh, I know. It, it was awesome. I loved it. So then, you were, then after that, you did Free the Fire then? Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. When I was in Truth, dude, we used to ride around and listen to those two albums on the Truth Bus, me and Mike Childers. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. loved those two albums because we were Imperials fans from when Russ was there. Oh, yeah. And then Ron and Jimmy Lee just took it to a different, like, stratosphere musically. I think my first Christian concert that I went to when I was still in Beeville was Petra. Oh, my gosh. They played in San Antonio, and I drove up from Beeville to see him. Wow. And then my next one, I think, was Russ Taft. Amazing. Just, oh, my gosh. What a great start, you know, for me. Being interested in Christian music to hear those bands, yep. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to do this. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's that's so interesting because you got into music first, then became a Christian. Yeah, a lot of times when you hear Christian music, it's such a letdown from secular music because the qualities, especially back then, the quality was just so different. You're right. And one of my favorite albums, and still to this day, was Allies' first record. Oh, wow. That one just set me on fire. That was so good. I saw them on that tour. Joe English opened for them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so how did you get from the Imperials? Tell everyone the story, how you ended up in Whiteheart from the Imperials. Well, honestly, I didn't know much at all about Whiteheart. Uh, what's interesting is... I didn't know they were auditioning players. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. And two of our guys were auditioning for Whiteheart, drummer and bass player. And uh, they told me about it. So I called them up, their office. I said, you know, a couple of guys brought in, you know, um, audition tapes, live tapes. Well, I'm the guitar player on those. So put my name in the hat. <laughs> That's great. So you didn't yeah. even know about it. I didn't really know much, you know. And then, I, of course, I got the record and started learning stuff. Then I got, you know, I got the, the call for the audition. Right. And went in, and I don't do well at auditions at all and really didn't feel like I did well. But they actually called me and said, we're going to go another round. So I went back and, you know, worked a little harder. So I knew the songs a little bit better. Yeah. And they actually got the, got the gig, which amazed me. But, you know, it's where God wanted me. So thank you, Lord. Right on. Well, I remember, Brian, uh, getting to hang out with you quite a lot um, right after you joined and you guys started working on the Powerhouse album because Billy had me out there shooting video. I was living with Anthony and Niemer. I remember watching Bill Drescher cut these, splice these drum tracks together and do all this amazing production stuff. And then you and I, a few years later, 
got to work with Ken Scott, who we all know started with the Beatles. What was it like for you getting to work with two giants in the production industry like Ken and Bill? Uh, Bill Drescher, I don't remember a whole lot about. Uh, I just remember doing the, rest of the, the first record, Powerhouse, and I just remember doing guitar overdubs with him, having a great time talking about Rich Springfield projects that he worked on. Right. And then, of course, Ken just is a legend. I mean, right. like I said, I got into this because of the Beatles, and right. there he was. There he was. <laughs> so that was a thrill. And plus, he had worked with Jeff Beck, who's one of the best guitar players of all time. Right. And so I'd always ask him about recording Jeff Beck. And actually, one of the songs we did on the record, uh, one of the solos, I said, I want that Jeff Beck effect where it's a slap back delay, but it goes left to right just real fast. Yep. So we, we did that on one of the songs. And so it was cool. It was I loved it, you know, just knowing that he had worked with my heroes. Right. Well, I have to say something in regards to the Inside album before we get back to yeah. the Powerhouse album. Uh, one of the things we did on that album was we got the drum tracks done, yeah. and then we did a lot of overdubs. And I have to say thank you. You came out every day we did bass overdubs. It'd be me, Ken, and you in the studio. And you sat there, and you encouraged me, and you navigated the parts with me. You made sure right. everything was comfortable and all that stuff for me in the studio. And it was just a blast. It's so cool. And I've got all of that stuff on footage. So I get to relive it. Every time I think about it, I pull it up and just peek back at it. It's so amazing to have shared that with you and share it with Ken and stuff. So getting back to the Powerhouse album, you listen to the solos on Powerhouse and Independence Day and that whole album, dude, you played amazing. So those parts, did you work those parts out ahead of time or did you uh, just off the cuff, just wing it? Usually it's, it's off the cuff. And then, you know, if I hit on something that I like and maybe um, develop it a little bit, but most of the time, yeah, it's just off the cuff. You know, the one thing about your playing is you are not afraid to throw it out there. Like you go for it. And I don't know that I've ever heard you not land correctly. Like you're just... You have you combine attitude, finesse, technique, and you get this monster tone, but then you have this creative vocabulary that what you end up playing always just seems to be what's right. I'm not worthy. I appreciate the praise, but I'm not worthy. <laughs> oh, dude, <laughs> you. you're a monster player. And uh, Whiteheart was lucky to have you. So when you look back at that catalog of all those albums that you did, you did powerhouse you did tales of wonder you did highlands then the greatest tits then you did the inside album of all of those albums do you have like a favorite no i i like all of them you know i've got favorite songs here and there uh you know i enjoyed playing and all i actually really liked the greatest hits thing because we anthony and i got to get uh What's that song we wrote? Nothing but the best. Nothing but the best, and uh, we because we did the music to that together, and and that made it to the record. And and Mark, uh, Mark, and I guess Billy wrote some killer lyrics for it, right? And based on you know the phrase that Anthony <laughs> came up with, nothing but the best. Dude, that was a phenomenal riff, and it ended up being a fantastic one of the best songs ever. Yeah, I love the way it turned out. Right. Okay, so you're in Whiteheart. You were uh, writing with Billy and Mark and getting more into the writing thing. Oh, and yeah. you started writing with some of the Petra guys. 
Was the Petra way of writing songs different from the guys in Whiteheart? Not a whole lot. Um, real similar. I think Whiteheart was a little edgier. Okay. You know, willing to, to go beyond, you know, push right. the envelope a little bit. Petra was a little more structured, mm-hmm. but in a good way. Right. Uh, and it was all good. And, you know, I'm just thrilled that they would allow me to be a part of it. Bob and I became good friends during that time. We, I would go to his house and play tennis with him. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, my son and his son would, would play with each other when they were little kids. That's cool. It was pretty cool. That's nice. Right on, dude. Okay, so then you transition from Whiteheart and get into country music. Tell us how that transition was for you. <laughs> it was so weird. <laughs> I didn't know anything about country and wasn't a country fan. And, you know, I'm just, I'm a rock guy. Right. But it's interesting because the timing was right. Or I just, I kind of felt like I was too old for the Christian music scene. And I had gotten out of it. And, uh, you know, Dino Paston? I do not. Uh, he's a keyboard player. Okay. Um, played with um, some big artists, country artists. We were doing a session together. Neymar was playing drums, and I had never worked with him before. And we were doing the song in the studio in Ohio. And he had gotten offered to be the band leader for a new country artist named Shauna Patron. Hmm. And he just recommend he recommended me for that gig to be the band leader. Oh my that gosh. was the first country gig I had, and I didn't know anybody. It's just because of him, right? Based on that one session we did together, he he uh, recommended me to do it. So I did that for a little while, and that led to playing with Paul Brandt, who's a Canadian artist, right? Was actually a Christian. He and his wife. What a wonderful guy and a wonderful couple. He and his wife Liz. So I played with him for a few years, and then I went from him to Chris Cagle, who's a Texas guy, was a Texas guy at the time. But interestingly, I was basically playing mostly rock guitar in all these situations and not really having to play, quote, country, right. quote. So it just worked out that, you know, what I did fit. And then I went from Chris Cagle to Trace Adkins, and it's been about 15 years now. Right. What, 2008, right, when you joined Trace? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let me ask you this in response to what you were just saying about playing rock guitar and country music. Do you think Shania and Mutt Lang changed country music to more of a rock or a southern rock thing? Yeah, I think it had a major part uh, in making that happen. Uh, And then, of course, Dan Huff, who was playing guitar for Mutt on all the sessions, Mutt started to recommend Dan to produce stuff. And then, of course, Dan took it more of that direction right that's interesting oh, yeah, it was great yeah one time i had to drop off a cassette tape yes a cassette tape to dan huff from mutt lang of some songs <laughs> that mutt was some rough demos he wanted dan to listen to because they were going to cut some tracks and i was the cool. delivery i was the delivery boy <laughs> <laughs> very cool how do you get a bass player off your porch take the cassette out of his hand <laughs> so you've been with trace since 2008 i see you on tv all the time it seems like you're on tv like every other week (laughs) so you've done the tonight show the late show saturday night live uh i even saw you on the season finale of the celebrity apprentice yeah um so give me some of the most memorable experiences you've had with trace well the 
one of the, the Celebrity Apprentice shows we did, I think it was the last one where Trace won, the, the big party afterwards in New York City. Right. Oh, Lord help me. There was Dennis Rodman dressed as a woman. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, his, and his boyfriend slash girlfriend, that a guy dressed as a woman. And they're basketball players. So they're both, you know, about eight feet tall. Oh, my Just gosh. walking around this place with dresses on. I just thought, this is... But, you know, now that's, oh, it's all cool. Everybody's doing it, I guess. But right. I just thought that was, I actually got a picture with them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And we, you know, we never, we tried to get to meet Trump. Uh, but he was standing over there with his bodyguard and, and sure. our band leader went and asked him, the bodyguard, can we get a band, Trace's band, get a picture with, with Donald Trump? He said, nope. <laughs> said, okay, never mind. That was memorable. And of course, going overseas, doing all the USO stuff with right. Trace was wow the first time we went uh gulf war was going on went to iraq i mean staying in saddam's old palace and flying in those helicopters oh my gosh i mean the chaff was going off because that's what happens when you're being targeted we came over this pickup truck that had been pulled over and the guys were on the machine guns ready to open fire right we're just on our way out to the fob to do a show you know we're like what the heck is going on here right so that was that was quite an interesting time of course we went over there like three or four times we've been all over the middle east right but yeah those are always an interesting excursion to be on at those uso shows but it's great seeing those young kids those soldiers are just amazing they're so yeah. smart like and the, the people flying our, our planes and the c-130s and the helicopters sometimes are, are girls i mean teenage right. girls <laughs> right and they'll have their feet up on the dash you know and their little snacks and they go just oh my gosh that amazing is so people. wild what a cool experience though to have yeah Oh my gosh, that is. But it, you know what? I'll say this: I've gone more places around the world with Whiteheart than anybody. Next to them would be the Imperials. Oh my god! Trace gosh. doesn't really like to tour internationally, so we've only done the USO stuff. Right. In Canada, that's about it. Of course, we went to Sweden once with Trace. Oh my gosh, was that beautiful or what? That was killer. Hmm. But Whiteheart, we God, we went all over the world. That was awesome. Right. Right. It was. Well, I was just thinking. Okay, so one of the things I was going to ask you. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. Tell everyone the story from your perspective of the trip we took to Norway and Sweden. We were going to be gone two days. We were going to play Norway on Friday night, Sweden on Saturday night, fly home Sunday. We get to Chicago, and John Knox announces to the band that he couldn't find his passport the night before. But but he said, but they'll let me go, though, won't they? <laughs> From your perspective, what do you remember about that weekend? Oh, gosh. I, well, freak out, you know, when he announces that he doesn't have his passport. I mean, what did, what did we do? How did we? We had a lighting guy named Miyagi who had oh, been a drummer yeah. in a previous life. And we had a road manager named Rob Luttrell who oh, had yeah, moved Rob. to Nashville to be a drummer in a previous <laughs> life. And they were both on the plane That's arguing right. About who was going to play. Yes. Because, and finally, Miyagi said, if I play drums, we don't have a drummer or a lighting guy. If you play drums, at least the lights will be right. Because <laughs> neither one That's of them right. wanted to do it. Yes. So Rob oh, ended wow. up playing drums. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Oh, my gosh. And by, by the way, Miyagi... 
has been our light guy. Right. I, I know. <laughs> I know it. Small world. I'll just never forget the plane ride to Europe with them stressing and talking and arguing over who was going to do yes. it. <laughs> what a trip. Now, I will say um, Rob did okay in Norway. Yeah. Yeah. And and did okay in Sweden, but a little less okay the second night. He was sore from the, <laughs> from the first night. <laughs> yeah. And if you go back and listen to that Highlands album, Knox played his butt off. Oh, yeah. And played some just ridiculous parts. And I told Rob going in, I said, dude, just play kick, snare, hat. Don't worry about the tom parts. Don't worry about anything. Right. And at one point, <laughs> at one point, I was hitting the floor, Tom, with the stick to, to the click. <laughs> yelling speed up you're dragging speed up and he looked and he was playing as hard as he could and he looked at me and he was yelling the dolphins suck the dolphins suck i'm like you're dragging speed it up and of course of course the only thing he remembers from the night is once we all walked off stage the norwegian press was so impressed that whiteheart played without their drummer that Rob was like the hit at the interview tent. He reminds me of that all the time. Who did they want to talk to when that was over? That's right. That's right. Oh, man. What a a trip. It was a good time. All right. So, well, let's move on to this, Brian. I wanted to tell you that I think, first of all, I think Trace is really, really lucky to have you. (laughs) <laughs> because uh, when I hear you, every time I come to see you guys play live, I do not hear a rock guitar player playing country music. I hear a master country player playing country music. And when you play his songs, dude, you play them as if you wrote them yourself. Well, I'm I'm very blessed to be there. Uh, I know that he likes what I do. And uh, I was told by his tour manager that, you know, I, I can have this gig as long as I want it. And I'm 66 years old right now. And I can't I can't think of too many artists that would have someone that old in their band. Though. I appreciate it. Oh, my gosh. You don't look 66 and you don't play like you're 66, dude. 66 <laughs> is the new 40. I'll just tell you that. <laughs> all right. So give me, of all the songs that you get to play every night with Trace, give me three songs you love to play. Ladies Love Country Boys is always a fun one. Of course, honky tonk, but donk donk is a fun one. <laughs> you know, that's Dan Huff on that solo. Oh my gosh, no way! I didn't and, know that. And I don't even play the solo on that one, but I still enjoy doing the song. Right, right. Um, and you know, Trace has some really good songs. I mean, he does. I mean, country or not, you know, it's just great songs. I love, I love that he is so comfortable with what he does. He doesn't try to do anything but what he yeah. does. Yeah, that song called "You're Gonna Miss This" was just a, a great message. Yes, and so he's, he does some cool stuff. I just, I've had a great time. Fifteen years. I mean, I'm still happy. So right. So fifteen years in the middle, twenty years before that, with the Imperials and Whiteheart and various country artists. Now, looking ahead, what have you been doing since the pandemic, and looking forward? What are you, uh, what are you getting into these days? I've been in my little studio room the whole time, just working on projects, producing and mixing and actually write, starting to write more. And I just recently got hooked back up with Kevin and Chelsea Brando right. yep. from Albany. 
Yep. And uh, she is she wants to be a writer and she's a good lyricist. So the three of us have been getting together. We got like I think four songs done already. Right on. And uh, keeping after it. Right. You sent me about six or eight songs a couple oh, yeah. weeks ago that you'd been working on to listen to. They're really good. Oh so, yeah, I think they're they're good. So and I'm you know I'm wanting to, to produce more and uh, I want to do more uh, Christian stuff. You know I just. I miss that. I miss that whole aspect of that. And I don't want to get too far removed from it, you know, and, and just doing secular stuff. So right. I want to do, I'm working with a, a couple from Canada right now, uh, mixing some of their songs and that's been fun. So looking forward to doing more of that. Right on. Hey, before I let you go, I want to run this by you. I've had this discussion with a few people in the last couple of weeks. What are your feelings about vintage guitars versus the boutique guitars that have kind of popped up in the last 15 to 30 years where there's different people making them same body shapes and styles, but boutique guitars. What's your feeling about those? <laughs> Man, I've always been a vintage guy, but um, the guitar I used with Trace uh, uh, was made by Dan Strain called a Daniel Caster, and it's, it looks like a vintage telly. You know? Right. So I like them, you know, I mean, the, the vintage things have their vibe, but it's like it, you can go down the rack of all new guitars or all vintage guitars of the same make. And they all sound different. Mm -hmm. They all play different. You know, I mean, I've played 59 Les Pauls that are killer and others that, eh, you know, it's just instruments are instruments and you just got to find that magic one. Right. And it's rare to find the magic one. I found one once in uh, minnesota oh my gosh it was a 64 strat magic it just radiated magic i, I plucked the low e string while it was hanging there and it just went Whoa. Wow. i said i gotta have this guitar and there's no way i did, couldn't afford it right <laughs> and i i sat there and played it for three hours oh trying to goodness. figure out ways to buy it but it's just good there and then the, the new guitars you know you can find those magic ones right yeah, so it's you know it doesn't matter really to me if it's old or new, as long as it sounds and plays good. Well, what's shocking to me is that the headstocks are what you can trademark, but body yeah. styles can't be trademarked. I think that right. is just insane. Now, this is not a slight on any of the boutique guitars that copy Les Pauls or copy Tellys or Strats. I just think that body style is what everybody recognizes. Yet. Yeah. Whoever's in charge says you can't trademark or copyright that. I know. It's, it's so it's so bizarre. So you see all yeah. these, you know, everybody does a telly version, everybody does a strat version. So I was wondering how you felt where you landed with that. Because I do think the boutique guitars, those manufacturers have the benefit of it's kind of like the Japanese with our cars. Yeah. They took cars, we made cars. And they took them and made them better. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, the, the Ferrari boutique guitar is taking everything that's good about vintage guitars and then adding stuff that makes them either more playable or they yeah. have the benefit of time to, yeah. you know, learn what sounds better over time and, you know, how sounds have evolved. And it's interesting because um, everybody 
always thinks of vintage gear. In fact, I just saw this the other day. You remember the ADAT machines everybody had 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. ADAT machines are officially now considered vintage gear. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> so do you feel the same way about pedals? Dan, there's, there's too many pedals nowadays. I mean, there's, I think I own two actual vintage pedals, and I hardly ever use them because there's so many gazillions of pedals that do the same thing and are more reliable and quieter. Right. But every once in a while, if I want that special thing, I'll pull out the old electroharmonics ones. And the same with guitars. I own one vintage guitar, and it's the, the Gresh that I got from John Schlitt. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's the only one I have. Everything else is new, new-ish. Wow. I have a Les Paul that was like an early 90s, I yep. guess. That could be almost vintage by now. Right. And everything else is new, you know, copies of vintage pieces. I, I take that back. I do have a vintage uh, acoustic, a Gibson acoustic from 1946. Oh, my gosh. And that was one of those where, I tell you, you go to a store and you find something that, that sounds great. You yeah. just, you got to get it if you possibly can because right. it'll be gone. And then you won't find one like it again. So I went ahead and put it on a credit card a few years back. And it had been busted up and glued back together. So fortunately, it was affordable. Right. But it still had that nice vintage, cool sound. Right. I have a Taylor 814 from like 2003 mm -hmm. that I'm hoping is considered yeah. vintage because I want to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds yeah. amazing, but it's one of those things. I know this is going to be this only a bass player would think this way. <laughs> But I played a 414 that I liked better because it felt better. <laughs> so I want to sell my 814 so I can get a 414. There you go. Which is going backwards, I know, but. Right, whatever, whatever sounds best and feels best to you. Right. That's what it's all about. Yep. Well, listen, man, I, uh, I got to tell you, my nephew Cody looks looks up to you as if you were eddie van halen himself he oh loves gosh. you you have always been so good to my nephew every time he comes to see you he calls me hey man i got to see wooten <laughs> for some context my nephew was really little when you and i toured together so he grew up you know coming up on the bus and you're like larger to life larger than life to him and you've <laughs> always been so dang good to him i just have to say thank you publicly awesome my pleasure other than me he is your biggest fan so awesome all right dude well listen i'll let you go i appreciate you taking the time to do the show today and uh, i will see you soon and i owe you lunch well i appreciate it thank you for letting me be a part of your podcast anytime i'm there for you right on dude i appreciate that so much brian <laughs> good luck with your producing your writing hopefully you'll hit the road soon and uh, get back out there at it thank you Hey Rockstar provides digital marketing software and services for your church to generate more interest, create more exposure, and reach more people. Let Hey Rockstar amplify the awesomeness of your ministry. And, as always, Hey Rockstar is a proud sponsor of the Stage Right with John Thorne podcast. Thanks again for tuning in today. My thanks to Hey Rockstar for sponsoring and my special thanks to Brian Wooten for being my guest. Next Friday, 12 noon, a new guest, a new episode. Have a fantastic week.